Dr. Francis Pitsilis is New Zealand's Doctor of Good Health and has been on television and radio for several years now, including the TV show Is Modern Medicine Killing You? where she helped patients with chronic illnesses recover using traditional medical and natural therapies. Francis has extensive experience in how stress can affect our health and has training in occupational medicine, nutrition, hormonal imbalances and natural therapies. She is expert in the field of anti-aging, integrative, preventative and regenerative medicine and is an international conference speaker in these and many other areas. All of these areas practiced together are what's called integrative medicine, the use of anything that has evidence, whether it's a drug or a natural therapy, to support people's health and well-being. In this episode, I speak with Frances about her practice, the ways in which our lifestyles are negatively affecting our health, and her professional goal of eventually seeing no chronic illness in New Zealand. Frances, thank you for... Thank you for joining me today. Um, this is going to be an interesting conversation. I have, I've had an interest in uh, integrated medicine or complementary medicine, for want of a better word, for, for, for a while, uh, as I think many other people do. Um, but before we get started on that, I'd be really interested to, to learn about your, your journey into the whole field of medicine and, you know, um, you can talk about your qualifications or, or your, your journey, mm. but just to give people a, a feeling for, for who you are and how you came to, to the field. Mm. Well, when I was growing up, I remember my mother telling me I was going to become a doctor. And for a while there, I rebelled and decided I was going to be a teacher. But then I really thought that I'd like to be a doctor. So I made that decision myself. Um, and also while I was growing up, she spoke to me about the benefits of nutrition and food. And she'd say, eat this, it's got vitamin C in it. Eat this, it's got iron in it. So I grew up with an appreciation of food as medicine, if you like. And so then I went to medical school and I wasn't taught any of that. And then I became a general practitioner, which was a round pig and a round hole. And I did everything from delivering the babies through to terminal care. But I encountered people who were getting sick and um, I found myself being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and I realised that I needed to, to prevent people getting sick, um, which, which then uh, got me started into doing regular health reviews with people and talking to them about their diet and their lifestyle. And this was in the 80s. And I became interested in chronic diseases like chronic pain and I didn't have enough tools. And the other thing that I noticed was that I started to work out what was going to happen to my patient and that I would end up just giving them more and more drugs as they got worse, that I, I didn't have the tools to be able to bring them back uh, or prevent them developing chronic diseases like diabetes and then the heart disease and then the you know, the dementia and the strokes and the other problems that people get. So I started, um, I did some occupational medicine training. But then I really woke up when I went to a longevity conference in Sydney in the year 2000. And I went to a workshop 
And I then realised that there was all this stuff that we hadn't been taught. So I sought out and did my first big nutrition training in Australia in about 2000. And then a few years after that, I did some bigger training. Um, and during, as time evolved, I um, did a lot of research as well. On top of having learnt a lot, I've written quite a lot and spoken in public quite a lot. And so that, that sort of led me to where I am now. So I transitioned in the uh, early part of the century from being an, an everyday general practitioner um, into someone who sees people with chronic stress, chronic illness, who've been elsewhere and haven't quite got there, and I'm usually able to help them. But when I do help them, all I'm doing is identifying what their deficiencies are. Um, their deficiencies in nutrition, their deficiencies in their biochemistry, their deficiencies in their hormones, and I generally correct them. And I will use medications as well. Um, so basically, I'm, I'm in the best position possible because I've now got a bigger toolbox than my conventional medicine toolbox. Mm. So, um, and that's good because being a doctor means I can prescribe things. So I've got a little bit more, ability, you know, tools than perhaps a nutritionist or a naturopath, right? Mm. And so that leads us into what is this complementary and alternative and what, what are all these names that people use? Um, I think overseas, certainly in America, they call it functional medicine. Mm. And sometimes people call it functional and integrative medicine. In New Zealand... I should properly call myself a complementary and alternative practitioner, according to the Medical Council of New Zealand, right? Um, but the Medical Council of New Zealand recognises that patients go off and take, buy things in shops and take things, and, and that there, are, there is valid research uh, behind some of it. And when, when you're using research-based um, treatment, to complement conventional treatment, they call that complementary. And when you're using something else instead of a drug or a conventional treatment, they call that alternative. Mm. So I'm really um, combining everything that I've been taught in conventional medicine and all the other stuff that I've learned about the scientifically backed natural therapies based on biochemistry and physiology and diet and lifestyle and all that sort of thing. Um, so then I also use anything that I know will help better, like melatonin or metformin, um, which helps people. Um, and So that, that's, it's really interesting. For me, it's fascinating that you've got a, a foot in both camps. You know, all of us are, uh, uh, some of us are fortunate to have very good general practitioners or family doctors. Um, uh, and particularly, you know, our family doctor's a great family doctor. If you go and see him, the first thing that he'll do is try and identify a lifestyle change or something about you that, that, that could be causing that underlying issue before they start throwing all kinds of drugs at you. 
Um, but equally, there are doctors out there for whichever time pressures or uh, speaking with friends in different countries where the first line of attack is to look at the symptom and, 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 uh, and throw a pharmaceutical drug at you. And, and, I, I, and I see immense value in that. You know, as I explained earlier, my, my son wouldn't be with us if it wasn't for conventional medicine. And um, both Rachel and I have, have had our fair share of successful conventional medicine over the years. Mm. Um, but this, this, I suppose, stigma, for want of a better word, is, is an interesting way of looking at it. And as soon as, you, as soon as a lot of people hear complementary medicine or alternative medicine, the, for some people, they immediately get a vision of somebody with divining rods and crystals, yes. um, you know, um, burying hemp feathers in the garden yes. and dancing around a yes. fire. Well, actually... Um Complementary and alternative medicine is prime time. Everybody's doing it, patients are doing it, and, and, and doctors have been told by the medical council they need to understand it because patients are doing it and they need to be able to counsel their patients about how, how their fish oil is going to interact with their medication or how their vitamin C or whatever they're taking is going to interact with their medication. And, and help them to make good choices, even if um, it's not their main interest. Um, and the important thing about what I do is that all of it has to have science behind it. It has to be research-based. I have to read it in peer-reviewed scientific literature. I have to have seen it and been taught it at proper conferences. Um, I, th I think it just hasn't become it's becoming more in people's radars, right? It's becoming more in people's radars. And I think these people who are doing it, um, part of it is that they realise that it's a good thing to take fish oil, a multivitamin and some vitamin C is a good idea. And part of it is because we know that 67% of the population has chronic illness. And modern medicine is fantastic for emergencies, for operations, for dreadfully sick people, for intensive care. However, um, I think it's chronic illness where um, this type of medicine, where you can combine everything that has science, not just medications, everything that has science, including natural therapies and lifestyle and diet, you get a better result. So for, for, for some people, they wouldn't understand <clears throat> what the definition of a chronic illness is. Mm. So how, how would you define a chronic illness? Goodness, I can't um, pull one up off the top of my head, but I think the definition would be something like that it's something that you have with you all the time that affects your quality of life. Mm. And uh, 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 an example would be asthma. Another example would be diabetes, okay. uh, heart disease, um, an autoimmune disease, um, anything that someone has with them that carries with them all the hypertension. So all of these are chronic health conditions. And when I last surveyed the Ministry of Health, 67% of our population has chronic illnesses. And it has an amazing effect on um, absenteeism from work. It really affects people's pockets, um, the community, employers and, and people's quality of life. Mm. So you mentioned, obviously, you, you go to conferences and 
you know, obviously you have one foot in conventional medicine. What's your, what's your feeling on the acceptance or the openness in, open quotes, conventional medicine towards uh, functional, integrated, complementary, yeah. alternative, whichever f phrase you want to put on that? Um, because, you know, many years ago, it, it, it was not on the radar, I guess. And I suppose, like you say, some GPs and doctors are forced in some respects to be aware of that now because of either contraindicators mm. with drugs or their patients are going to be doing this, so they need to be aware of it. But there's a big difference between a doctor having some knowledge because they have to and a doctor having some knowledge because they believe there's some value in it and, and, and it would make a difference to their patient's health. Yes. Well, um, from the beginning, I've, um, I think you're asking me what are my colleagues thinking about all of it? And I think from the beginning, I, I saw a spectrum from um, no, 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 this is weird, across to, um, well, I'm open, give it a go. And I think we're getting more doctors that are moving towards the I'm open, give it, give it a go. And, Why do you think and, more, well, I, and more doctors learning it and, and looking at it themselves. I, I think um, because... They, are, they know that they're there to support their patients. They know that they're there to advocate for their patients. Um, and and the, the, thoughtful, the thoughtful ones put aside their own biases and try to help their patient do the best for their patient. You know, they understand that their patient's looking for solutions and they are supporting them. Okay? So... If the doctor doesn't have deep knowledge about complementary and alternative medicine, but they know if something looks really dangerous, um, and they'll keep an eye on their patient, and that, you know, um, and and if a doctor's open, and I learnt that when I was really young, if you're open, your patients will tell you everything, mm. and that's the best way to do this because if you say, oh no, that's rubbish, they go, they'll go and do it, and they won't tell you. Mm. So that helped me from the very beginning. I remained open because I worked it out. And because I was open, I came across this stuff and I realised it had value and I made sure I learnt all about it. So I think the, the openness is obviously key and that just comes down to communication with people and honesty and you know, not knowing how to attack something unless you've got the full picture, I guess. Um, I suppose if we want to look at some some examples of that, I mean, are in in your time from just purely being a, a medical GP through to the, the, you know the functional integrated side, have you seen what were pharmaceutical treatments for conditions um, morph into more effective or equivalent? Um, alternative or complementary treatments for so, things? So you're saying, have I now morphed into using more complementary and alternative no, instead I, of I drugs? No, I guess what I'm saying is, are there, are there, are there, say like, say diabetes, for example, mm. or hypertension or something mm. which is, or um, asthma or yeah. something which obviously you've defined as a chronic illness, which mm. a lot of people in society suffer with, both in New Zealand and, and globally. Are there, are there kind of, are there any obvious complementary or other treatments 
um, other than pharmaceutical-based treatments that you've seen be taken on board more? Yes. Now, here's an example for asthma. Um, you've got someone who can't do without their inhalers and they come to you and they've got a poor diet um, and they're under stress and they're low in magnesium and they're low in vitamin D. And um, so you discover all of this stuff and you slowly help them to adjust their diet because asthmatics usually do better without gluten and without milk, yogurt and ice cream. And some asthmatics do better with uh, a low histamine diet. And so you, and even salicylate. So you have a look at that. You make sure they're sleeping. Um, you then correct their vitamin and mineral imbalance. So zinc's really good for asthma. Magnesium opens up the airways, right? Vitamin C is generally very good, but can have antihistamine effects just like um, magnesium. Um, and then you deal with their stress management. You find out whether there's a hidden reason why they're getting more asthma. Are they hyperventilating? Because that's often a hidden cause of problems. And over a period of time, you can lessen the requirement for the medication. And they're freer. They can sleep without coughing half the night. They can go out in the cold without having to get the inhaler out straight away. They're just a lot, their quality of life improves. So we don't want to get rid of medication. We want to help people's quality of life. And all we're doing is identifying deficiencies. I forgot to mention vitamin D, amazing for asthma. Yeah, so um, there's an example for you. And, you know, then you look at metabolic syndrome, which is the pot tummy, hypertension, abnormal cholesterol, diabetes. But you can head towards that by starting to see some abnormal liver function tests, some abnormal cholesterol, some evidence of inflammation in the biochemistry. So I can start seeing that in someone's future. It's like palm reading, really. I sort of become a detective. And I think, oh, I can see what's in your future. Metabolic syndrome is a lifestyle disease um, as, it, uh, over, over, as, it over, as it sort of washes over someone's genes. I mean, you're genetically predisposed, but then get the lifestyle right, correct the imbalances, uh, help them lose weight by correcting their imbalances, and use a medication called metformin that, that, that lowers their blood sugar, helps them lose weight, um, gets rid of appetite, protects them from cancer you know, uh, helps their brain, helps their heart. So we've got some really good medicines that are protective. Um, so really I'm using anything I've got at my disposal, but I'm identifying first and then correcting from underneath. Diet, lifestyle, make sure they're not poisoned, fix up the nutrition, fix up the hormones, drugs last. But I will invariably use drugs. A good example of that would be a woman with breast cancer, for example. I can't give her any hormones. It's not safe. So I will say to her, let's use an antidepressant medicine because it's really good at hot flushes. Um, maybe even we can give you some St. John's wort instead if you prefer. So when I'm dealing with someone, it's not about what's safe, what's effective, what's scientifically backed. It's also got to be acceptable to the patient. So you're talking with the patient and discussing the options. So you talk about, well, this is what conventional medicine would offer you. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
um, this has got this other stuff has got some research behind it that you might wish to look at. Da 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 da. And then the patient makes their decision. It's their decision. It's what they want. What they feel comfortable with. Uh, that's really interesting, and I, and I picked up on one thing that you just mentioned briefly, um, which I'd like to talk to more if possible, which is stress. Mm. Um, uh, invariably people are running at a much faster pace the the pressure to achieve or provide or to produce seems to be um you know we're becoming more human human be human doings than human beings to some extent um and and obviously you can go to your conventional doctor and you know now how are you stressed how's things at work all that kind of thing um but what would be, do you see that as one of the fundamental causes of, the root causes of many issues that you see? Absolutely. Um, before patients see me, they do quite a few questionnaires. And one of them is about their personality, because your personality and how you approach things influences how you view the world, which then influences how you're going to respond, right? So... That's really important because that gives me a clue about how that person um, uh, reacts in their life. Um, and stress is absolutely a very important contributor to all diseases. Um, and so that's an important part of it. And sometimes I'll talk to somebody about their personality and give them resources to help them deal with it um, before I even go through a lot of stuff because I can see that it's going to be important. Um, so here's an example. Your best worker is someone whose motto is, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. They're into the detail. They're utterly reliable. They'll carry your water across the desert. Um, but they also often can be someone who doesn't want to rock the boat. And their motto would be peace at any price. So if you've got that combination quite strongly... They can't say no, then they've got to do it very well. They get overloaded and they get stressed. So you have to teach that person how to identify when they're doing that to themselves and how to be a bit more balanced about what they do too much detail on and give them some techniques on how to say no nicely in a way that they can cope with because they normally can't say no. And then you've got 20% of the population is highly sensitive. 20% of the population. Um, is more emotionally sensitive, gets more deeply hurt by the things going on around them. So if you can help them identify that um, and then understand that about themselves and, and then, then they, can, they can navigate life a lot better. So I haven't, I've only met a, met a couple of people who are really highly crippled by it. Everybody else can usually cope. But I have noticed that it seems to go along with low B vitamins, although I haven't got any proof about that at the moment I, I typically have to give them a lot more b vitamins to help them so personality how you view the world and i see people it's my bread and butter stress i see people who are wired and tired they can't sleep they get up exhausted as if they haven't slept they drag themselves through the day they get worse in the afternoon they pick up in the evening get a second wind and then they can't sleep again so this is quite typical of people who are quite drained. And it's not just 
an endocrine organ you have to deal with. It's really a whole several layers of things that you've got to deal with, what they've had to deal with, how they're dealing with it, getting them, helping them to sleep properly again, getting their diet right, correcting their imbalances, and sometimes giving them hormones if they're depleted. Mm. So there's a whole layer. I mean, it's, it's been something I've, I've followed over recent years. Um, I kind of probably know enough about it to be dangerous, but not, not, too, not informed enough. But up until recent, fairly recent times, I guess, in the medical profession, the whole understanding of your stress and particularly, I suppose, your, your microbiome and how your, your gut affects you. Um, these are things which, you know, these are things that you possibly can't detect. You know, you can't go and get a, can't go to a doctor and, and get a blood test for stress directly or this or whatever. But these are things which seem to have crept into the broader knowledge of the medical profession as having a, a huge impact on somebody's overall health. And the microbiome fascinates me the way that, mm. you know, it's only in recent history of years mm. where it's been shown to play mm such a massive... Well, you know, when they did the Human DNA Project, they discovered that we had 10 times more bacterial DNA in the human body than human DNA, right? 10 times more bacterial DNA than human DNA. And we know the definition of the microbiome is all of the bacteria all over your body, which is all over your body, but the biggest amount is around your small bowel. And there's a special arrangement there and stress does affect it, by the way. There's a special arrangement because you know the small bowel has got villi, little finger projections. Well, when you really flatten that all out, it's just like a big tennis court or a rugby field. I can't remember the size of it, right? But it's big. And there's a strategic arrangement because in the outside world, you have two or three kilograms worth of what you hope are friendly bacteria. And on the inside world, you've got a uh, up to 85% of your whole immune system. So your immune system sends cells up to the surface to sample the, the bacteria, bring them down through the cell wall, present them to these uncommitted T cells. And if they see the wrong mix of bacteria, they're gonna think, I'm in a hostile environment, inflammation. So that comes out as fatigue, headache, depression, anxiety, whatever you're genetically wired to get, an autoimmune condition, asthma, weight gain, whatever it is, that will happen to you. So the microbiome is really quite critical. And so practitioners like me will correct the diet, select appropriate probiotics, sometimes um, do a, a gut detoxification, which is um, they'll think about what's in that gut that shouldn't be there and let's do something herbally or medically to try and improve the balance of, um, you know, microbiome, bacteria. And if it doesn't work, you actually can test the DNA of your microbiome now. I, I, while you were just saying this, I'm just thinking of a, a friend in the UK who had IBS for many years and finally went to go and get their microbiome tested and um, had it rectified. And, and they'd been on medication did their various medications and operations over the years, um, not the most pleasant condition at all. Do you mean irritable bowel syndrome? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, they, they, and 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 once their microbiome 
was back in balance. It, it almost, I mean, it didn't miraculously go away, but almost mm. miraculously went away. Is that, I mean, the, uh, there must be many things linked to, to the microbiome, I oh, guess. Oh, absolutely. I mean, autoimmune diseases, depression, anxiety. I mean, there's, there's this gut-brain connection. We know there's a gut-brain connection. Is, not that, just, the, is that the vagan, this is the vagan nerve, I think, well, isn't it? Or something? Well, yes, yeah. the vagus nerve ca so. is, calms your body down. We say it causes rest and digest instead of fight or flight, which is the other side of your autonomic or automatic nervous system, right? We're, we're all doing fight or flight at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's not enough rest and digest. So what happens is that you've got all this... Um, these autonomic nerves associated, these automatic nerves associated with the small bowel, and do you, do you, with the bowel generally. And do you know that our bowel makes more of our serotonin than our brain does? No, I didn't know that. Mm. So there is a definite gut-brain connection through the normal somatic nerves, through the autonomic nerves, the automatic nerves, and through the blood. And so the gut affects the brain for sure, and mm. other organs. Yeah, I, I, it, I, again, the, the, the whole microbiome thing was something which, which has been fascinating. And I remember in a, in, a, in a moment of insanity deciding to watch some conference from Southern Ireland where this, this guy presented their findings over the past five years. And it was, it was, it was, a, it was a happy combination of tediously boring but insightfully interesting at the same time. And it was all about... Um, they were they in in different animals. They severed the link between the gut and the brain, or they changed the diet rapidly, and it was uh, and it was there was there was proper controls and all of that in place. And the marked effect on the animal's mood or their health just by changing their microbiome mm. was incredible. Mm. And I just thought, and I was just thinking. Surely once a year we should be going to the doctor and, and getting our microbiome tested. That's not that's not mainstream. And it's a very it, it, it's six hundred and fifty dollars that oh, test. Okay. It's an expensive test. Yeah. Um and naturopaths can also test you for um you know, a comprehensive stool analysis as well. That's another way of getting an idea of what your gut's doing. Um you know, these are expensive tests, so what I try and do is do it all with my knowledge and experience, and that's called the art of medicine, um, understanding um, how to sort of diagnose and suspect and do what we can. It sounds like a fascinating oxymoron, but it's not, obviously. Well, the thing is, doctors <laughs> all the time talk about the art of medicine. You're, anyone's GP is practising the art of medicine with them, because their GP knows them. They know what's going on in their family. They know what they've been through. They're going to ask some questions and they know what's going on. And so then when you come to the GP with a certain symptom or a problem, they, they know uh, more about you than you can remember you've told them. And, and that they make a better diagnosis than someone who doesn't know you. And so the art of medicine is... is understanding sometimes the intangible or being a detective to link things up and to realise that there are certain connections. For example, um, people who often have poor memory, anxiety, fatigue, etc., and if they've got allergy as well, they can have a certain condition, an overall condition that you're better off treating than just one thing at a time with a drug.
You see what I mean? So we've all been taught about the fact that medicine is part art and part science. So when you say you've been taught this in medical school... Absolutely. Okay. Oh, that was from the... Ve- do- doctors are all taught about the art of medicine. It's not just science. That's really interesting because I think back to, uh, you know, brief history lesson, I guess, but prior to the 1500s, you know, 1500s and Francis Bacon and the, 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 the rise of the materialist science so that everything is... So <laughs> I won't bore you to this, but prior to, prior to that period, prior to materialism, not, I don't mean financial materialism, mm. but material as in, as in atoms and yes. physics and mechanics yes. and chemistry, um, prior to that, the, the world was a much more... I hate the word holistic in some respects, but but the, but the spirituality, the art, yes, they, but they yeah. both they both kind of went hand in hand with with yeah, with, with it, medicine well, I mean, and philosophy. You know, I think it was I think Hippocrates who said that you should look at someone's diet, hmm. um, and I think you know other various um, wise people have discussed you know um, spiritual health as well as lifestyle as being an important part of. Um, your health and happiness. And I suppose when we say spiritual health, we don't have to be all woo-woo about it. No. We, can just, we can just put that down as stress and well-being. Well, no, I mean, and your belonging, yes, I guess. or you could put it down to understanding that this is life and that life will always throw punches at you and that you've either got to, that you can't keep meeting them head on and that you can't panic and go to pieces, that you eventually learn to roll with the punches um, so understanding life, um, understanding everyone has their own way of looking at life and, 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 and being spiritual if they want to be spiritual. I mean, with that in mind, do you have a healthy level, level of optimism for people starting their career through medical school and what's on the curriculum and what they're being taught and the balance and nutrition and... All of these things. A few years ago, I bailed up the head of the medical school, and um, I won't tell you who it is. And he brought along another colleague, a professor, to give him moral support. And I said, "Are you tr- teaching nutrition in medical school?" Now, I'm—I don't know how much nutrition is being taught now, but I am noticing that some of the medical students are popping up and saying, "I'm interested in this type of medicine." So. It may well be that they're getting more exposure to it. What would I say to somebody? Um, I'd say, you know, learn your conventional medicine well. And when you're ready, then learn this other stuff, which is what I did. And I think that that's what makes me um, very helpful to people because I've got a really good solid standing in conventional medicine. And I then added this other stuff. Um, I was going to say earlier, I would also say to them that when it comes to general practice, general practitioners agree that the system is not working well for patients or doctors, that the 15-minute consultation has to change. And I, I know that that's been discussed and I'm hoping to see that that does change. Because if you come along to the doctor and there's pressure to only discuss one problem, it doesn't work. Because that migraine is often associated with insomnia, premenstrual syndrome, irritable bowel, and depression and anxiety. So how are you going to 
treat that migraine by giving them pills if you don't also deal with the irritable bowel, the anxiety, the stress at work with the bullying bullying boss and, you know, all the other things that are influencing a constellation of problems. So does that open the possibility in the future of general practice? Because that's how most, most people's experience of healthcare is through their general practitioner, mm. I guess. Um, does, does, would that, in your mind, be a good place to say, OK, at your local general practitioner or your local doctors, um, there's a nutritionist, there's a psychologist... Um, that almost do your warrant of fitness or or, or your yeah. general baseline well-being before, and then you go and see your GP with that information. Is that would that? Well, or is there um, a better way of doing it? Well, I think if if you it depends on how the practitioner wants to work. We have got these integrated medical centres, integrated medical centres that have got physios and. Rex rays and other people in there. So that's happening now. And I think if you're a 15-minute GP, you're going to send patients off to other, and then you are the um, overseer of their program. Um, it, 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 it will be helpful, but it won't work the same way as spending... I spend two hours with my first patient, and before that they've done a lot of form-filling as well to save time. Um, one of the things that, ha that, uh, that people like me do is that they spend a longer period of time because the information is so important. Mm, yeah. um, so I think, I think ultimately general practitioners, um, if they want to get the results that I've been getting, will probably have to spend more time. But the system is moving towards nurses helping a lot and so nurses do a lot of asthma screening, diabetes screening, you know, to help the GP. And I, I actually agree with that because if you're a highly, highly trained doctor, you don't need to look at every child's ears. You don't have to do every woman's smear, for example. So we're getting away from what I do. Mm -hmm. But I think, and we've got a doctor shortage as well. So I think it's good um, to have nurses and other colleagues assisting so that so that you can do the, the stuff that only you can do and others can do the other stuff. Why do we have a doctor shortage? I think it's um, I think some of our doctors have gone to Australia for more money could be. Um, I think it could be that. I know that we're importing foreign doctors. Um, I'm not sure about the medical schools, whether they, they've decided to train enough people. Um, do you, I'm, I suppose what I'm probing at is there, uh, 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 do you think less people are inclined to come into the profession because they, they see it as a, actually, ironically, quite a high-stress a high profession? Or, Being a general I mean, practitioner is high-stress. It has a very high burnout rate. And I think it's because of this, what I call turnstile medicine, you know, one in, one out. One in, one out, you know, 15 minutes. It takes you two and a half minutes to get them to your room and back out. So then if you've got 11 and a half minutes or whatever it is, um, you, you know, a general practitioner is worth their weight in gold because they are so knowledgeable, they are so mentally adept, 
and they're solving people's problems on the go in short periods of time. Mm. Um, so it is hard, hard work. And when I last checked, every hour of consulting generates half an hour of paperwork. So, okay, let's put you in control of a of, a, of an island dicta <laughs> an island dictatorship where you're the head of the head of health and well-being. I mean, it's quite interesting that some countries. I mean, I mean, Bhutan's always a, a famous country where yeah. they measure their success as a nation through their growth. In you know, New Zealand or the West, we measure GDP, a uh, gross domestic product, where Bhutan measures the gross happiness product of their yeah. of their nation. So, if you, you know, in a, in a utopia where you were in mm. control of this, um, how could we change? How could we change medicine, conventional medicine, and, and mm. for people to just improve the health okay. and the well-being? Now, of the I mean, I haven't prepared for this, but no. what comes into my mind are a couple of co concepts, and that one concept is um, getting into the community, really working on a community level to help with lifestyle and diet. That's one thing. And the other concept that comes to mind is the Mediterranean lifestyle, which seems to contribute to uh, the absence of chronic diseases and longer life. Right? So when they've analysed the Mediterranean lifestyle, they see a highly plant-based diet. They see a supportive community, right? Um, and... Uh, and, and that's really, really important. Supportive community, um, highly plant-based diet. And then I think with the Mediterraneans, they're probably genetically predisposed to do well with the Mediterranean diet. No one's done the, because I've reviewed this, no one's done the research on whether a non-Mediterranean does well with the Mediterranean diet, you see. But we do know that highly plant-based diets work very, very well. There was a very big study, uh, the, health, the Adventist Health Study, that, that followed 70,000 um, of their followers, and they were either vegans or vegetarians. And they did really well, you know, no dementia, no cancer, no heart disease, etc. So I think the foundations of my island colony would be community, diet and lifestyle. Mm. And then I would... Maybe a glass or two of red wine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and we do know that genetically the Mediterraneans do well with wine, but some people genetically don't, actually. And that's where we're learning more about genes and we know, we, we know that some people are genetically predisposed to certain problems. Um, so that's, that's definitely mainstream in my area. We, we analyse genes, we look at biochemistry... Um, you know, um, but really, I think I would focus on community, lifestyle and diet. I think I remember, I think I don't know if it was a United Nations report or something where they looked at some of the longer living places. It was somewhere, I think it was in Osaka in Japan. It was also somewhere in Sicily. Yeah. And I remember, I remember reading that study and it was fascinating. And it was, it was basically... Um, there was no six hours of cardio, hard cardiovascular. No. It was just walking gently mm. up and down hills yep. to go and see yep. your neighbour, to have that community support, to have a shared meal and a glass of wine and a bit of fish, and then you wander back down the mm. hill. Mm. Uh, and, and I think you're probably thinking of Okinawa. Uh, Okinawa, yes. Okinawa. Yeah. And one of the sayings of the Okinawans is to stop eating before you feel full. Okay. that was That's something else I'm going to come on to. So, look, I mean, mm. I've always... 
you know, I, I try and, whenever I do these conversations, I either try and lay my political colours on my sleeve or whatever, but talking about your own health issues is, is, is a tricky thing. But I've always carried extra weight my whole life, um, you know, 10, 15 kilo or whatever. Um, and it's just interesting... Um, going on a mostly I mean when I say I'm mostly plant-based I probably eat meat once a week or something like that or twice a week um but you do feel the difference it's quite quite amazing just changing your basic oh, yes. diet I have some patients as they get older tell me that they actually don't feel as well when they eat meat although I still want people to eat some meat I mean I don't want people to get iron deficient mm. I mean, you've got to have a balance but the diet really does influence you um I've found I've been able to get one patient. Um, my record was that I had one patient with inflammatory bowel disease who did everything I asked him to do, including diet, and he got better in 11 days. Mm. That was a record. But it just shows you how important diet is. Um, and, of course, if you've got an inflamed bowel and, you, and you're pooing bloody poo and you go to hospital, what do they do? They don't feed you, do they? They give your gut a rest from having to cope with the food, right? So food is important because it influences your microbiome, right? Um, there are certain people like people with autoimmune diseases who probably do better without gluten um, because particularly in rheumatoid arthritis, gluten causes an increase in a bug called Proteus and that proteus causes quite a lot of activation of the immune system to try and get rid of it. But the problem is that it also attacks the joints by mistake. Mm. And you get examples of that all the way through. Um, but that now leads us into the um, intermittent fasting, doesn't it? Yeah, that, I, it's funny, just as you were talking, that mm. this little voice was going, actually, and that's, that's something I, I, I try and do mm. some of. Um, and purely... I, I mean, I suppose if we look back at hundreds of thousands of years, that's what we used to do naturally anyway. Yes, we, we did. It's only probably extreme recent history where you know, three meals a day and mm -hmm. you don't feel hungry. Mm -hmm. um, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, should well, we feel hungry? You and I, because I've got metabolic syndrome in my family, you and I, when everybody else starved to death, we would live because we store energy very efficiently. Right. So we're survivors. So it's a genetic trait. But now we're drowning in food. And what happens, I mean, we've known for decades that if we starve rodents, they live longer. We know that. Mm. But the research on humans has only been coming out more recently. And we know that 12 hours or more of non-eating, with, with women it might need to be longer, but men, 12 hours is enough, um, basically uh, gives you... Um, gut arrest from having to deal with food, it gives your biochemistry a rest, and it gives it time to recycle. And they call that autophagy. And that's Greek for self-eating. Auto, self, phagy, eating, self-eating. So basically what your body does is it, it, it gobbles up and, and, and gets rid of all the old malfunctioning cells and brings you new ones new fresh cells to work a lot better. So my patients who do this report to me that they lose weight, they have more energy, their brain works better. I've got one patient who does a two-day two fast on the weekend and he says, after 48 hours, he's amazing. 
Well, you'd have liquid, but you wouldn't, you know. Um, and so I do my sort of intermittent fasting as well. I don't eat till one o'clock. Okay. Yeah, so that, that, that for me is something... What I think I'm hearing here is it's actually the, the fundamentals of, of being well are fairly fundamental and mm. a lot of it is to do with how much how much and how frequently you put things in your mouth and, and it's also what type of stuff you put in your mouth and then the other bit seems to be um, your well-being and social cohesion and yeah, happiness. Your, your community and yeah. Yeah, supportive community rather than being on a treadmill and, so, and, and running, running from a tiger all day. So here's an interesting, uh, interesting to get your thoughts on this. So the, the link between what we eat and our microbiome and the, how that affects our mood, well, not only just the way our body functions, but also how our brain functions and our mood and uh, our wellness in general. I'm assuming that there are plenty of examples the other way around where our mood and how happy we are has direct physical Yep. Effects yep. on our yes, body. Yes, yeah, I mean, I, there's another example. Some people have a gene called HLAB27, and this gene is associated with psoriatic arthritis, psoriasis, inflammatory bowel diseases, some cases of irritable bowel, and ankylosing spondylitis. Now, if that person has that gene um, and they eat starch, they get more body pain because the starch causes an overgrowth of a bug called Klebsiella. And then your body, your immune system, so it's really the action of your immune system that influences your health in response to what is in your microbiome. The immune system tries to get rid of it, but by mistake, it'll give you these other symptoms depending on who you are. So I can think of um, a woman who we found this out eventually um, and then the final thing that helped her get over her depression was getting starch out of her diet. And I haven't seen her since. Mm. So um, sometimes you have to look for these things. But, you know, um, it is really fundamental. Yeah, and, and I guess I'm fascinated by the, 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 the way your mind can affect your health as well. I mean, it, it all starts to sound a little bit woo-woo in some respects, but, um, you know, placebo effect is a, a medically recognised thing. It happens. Yeah. Um, if somebody gets better from a placebo effect, what's the difference between them getting better between mm. that and mm. a, a medicine as long well, as they're better? Doctors know that they're using the placebo effect. Mm. I mean, I have patients who... Um, they, they say to me sometimes, oh, I feel better already. Now, what is that? That's because I've given them time, I've shown them what's going on, I've given them a plan, I've told them what we're going to do, and they have now have a plan and they feel more optimistic, right? Mm. So placebo effect um, is, can be useful. There is another thing called the nocebo effect that you can use things negatively as well. But coming back to um, your mind can make you sick, yes, it can, because we're all wired either gene ge genetically and or through our childhood. If you've had a stressful childhood, you'll have a tendency to worry more and have more anxiety. So if you gr grew up with 
with a in a stressful household, for example. So that's why you need to know these things. These people are going to worry more. They're going to become more anxious. So becoming aware of your thoughts is very important. And on that basis, cognitive behaviour therapy is a form of therapy that was invented by Dr. Beck a long time ago. He's probably died now. And he developed cognitive behaviour therapy. Now, I'm not an expert in it, but counsellors and psychologists help people to understand how they think so that they can change it. And then the outcome changes because your thoughts precede anything else that happens in your body. So you'll have thoughts and then your primitive brain will pick up on this and if it's a worrying thought, you're going to get more sympathetic drive and that's going to affect your digestion, your gut flora, your muscles, your hormones. So I guess this, is, this goes back to your, your, your fight and flight. So yes. You, so your, 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 a position of stress will just put your body in a, into, in, fight or flight. In, into a, a biochemical state of fight or flight. Yes, and you won't know it. Hmm. And, and you won't know it until you go to the doctor and say, oh, I've got these symptoms of irritable bowel. You're not going to say that, but the doctor will say you've got irritable bowel. Or you've got this tension headache. Um, so, um, and, and, and people tell me, you know, their asthma gets worse when they're stressed. Um, so I think lifestyle aspects do help people. So any sort of meditative activity, becoming mindful, anything that helps you to pick up on these thoughts and you think, hmm, well, I could think differently about that. And then the outcome changes. It's not that easy to change your thoughts. But with persistence and with professional help, people can then think differently. Like um, when I got burnt out a few years ago, I had counselling. And the result of that was I got better at picking up what I would do to myself. And I'd say, oh, I'm doing that again. <laughs> so I would then change what I was doing and how I was thinking. So it's interesting you mentioned the term burnt out. I mean, um, I, I look back to perhaps stressful times in, in, in my life and looking back on it now, I can see I was probably getting burnt out from one thing or another. But I don't think it's something people consciously pick up on no, when, you're in the, when you're in the middle of it. So, for, so, for, so you know, without prying too personally, yeah, you can yeah. tell me to bugger off. No, but, that's I mean, right. Um, how did, how did that manifest in you and how did you recognise it? Right. I was doing too much. I was, doing, I was delivering babies. I was the chairman of the after-hours service on the North Shore. Um, I wasn't getting enough sleep. Um, and I had a, a very big medical practice. And um, this is quite common in doctors, especially women doctors. Um, and so what I started experiencing is I would wake up tired and not want to go to work. This is usually the first symptom, okay? And then, then um, I didn't sleep that well. This is common as well. And then I started to get a bit low. So I went on medication for a little while, okay? So... This is really common. This is my bread and butter. People who wake up as if they haven't slept, don't want to go to work. Some people feel dread going to work, having to make themselves go to work, forcing themselves to get out of bed. 
It's a nightmare getting any sleep. Luckily, we have got some really good natural stuff now. Um, and back in the day, I didn't know anything about progesterone, you know, so which is wonderful for women. We could have another chat about that. Um, and, and for DHEA and uh, natural hormones, of course, they have to be given safely. But now I don't have to give people antidepressants every time. I certainly will if I'm very worried. Don't worry, you know, I will. But, um, you know, and I've given talks about enhancing your performance and resilience and not getting burnt out mm. um, because, because it sneaks up on you. How, how much of... That's why you don't know about it. it until you keep compensating until you hit the brick wall. Yeah. Right. So it, uh, I, I think many people listen to this will go, oh, shit, I'm burnt <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah, every, everybody I see is giving me all these symptoms. They don't sleep. They, they wake up frequently. They get up tired. They're anxious. They don't think very well. Their memory's no good. They're distracted. Some of them have got brain fog. Um, they can't concentrate. Um, this is quite typical, and it's not one thing. It's not what some people call adrenal fatigue and in inverted commas. No, that's not that. Um, it's a whole lot of deficiencies and things that are drained that you have to fix up and lifestyle and diet. Yeah. So, one, you know, I, I'm listening to our conversation and it, a, a lot of it is, well, all of it rings true from what you're, you know, with the examples that you, you're talking about. But I can't help but think that there are, you know, and if people are in a fortunate position enough to, to afford to, to come and get consultations from functional or you know, mm. integrated medicine, that, that's great. Um, but some people, that's just not an option. Um, and, and I guess, you know, how, if you feel that you can't financially access that, um, but you want to make some change in your life, yeah. What I mean, can you do? I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, one, this is one of the reasons why I thought we'd just start this conversation. Mm. And because, um, you know, I wanted this to be quite a, a broad ranging mm. conversation to get to know you a little bit. And obviously, and, the, and if, if we like each other and it comes out well, it'd be good to look at some specific examples mm. and conditions moving on from there. Um, but if people are just bombarded with all of these things that they feel like they should be doing, I should be improving my diet, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing this, but they don't almost feel lost right. with what they should be doing. Are there, are there are some just really simple things that people can start doing that would make a difference? Yes, I'll give you an outline. And also I might say people can look at my YouTube videos. That's okay. what they're there for. Okay, I'll make sure I put a link mm. in the description for um, that. So if you can't sleep, ask your family doctor for melatonin. Right. Um, take some magnesium citrate, um, not oxalate or oxide. Just remember O means bowel opening. They are not well absorbed and they're for constipated people. So magnesium citrate or any of the magnesiums that don't have O. So they'll help you sleep at night and the magnesium will help you wake up with more energy. Um, get your diet right. Most people are better off without gluten. 
If you're tired and trying to lose weight, keep a low, low sugar, low starch diet and adequate protein through the day so that you have more energy from the protein. If you've got hay fever, allergy, eczema, then avoid milk yogurt and ice cream. Okay, so that's a good start. So we're getting you sleeping, we're getting the diet right, take a good general probiotic every day, some vitamin C, good multi and some fish oil. So then you're going to go and get some magnesium. Now you could do the zinc taste test in the shop, because zinc's an antidepressant. So when you say zinc taste test, what was Well, it's not accurate, but if you haven't got access to a blood test, mm. then it's a guide. Mm. Um, zinc is important for 300 reactions in your body. Uh, very good for your thyroid, hair, skin, nails, asthma, viral illnesses, etc. And it's an antidepressant and helps you sleep. So um, you can do it, it, you you do a test in the shop, and if you can't taste it, it means you haven't got enough zinc. Another sign that you haven't got enough zinc is if you've got white spots on your fingernails, right? Um, you could ask your, your GP for a blood test, um, but that could get complicated, so we'll just keep it simple. Mm. You can ask your GP for a blood test for vitamin D, your B vitamins, and your iron, mm. and maybe even your thyroid. Now, vitamin D, when I last did the research on it, 50% of the world was deficient. And if you live in the South Island, you'll never get enough. And vitamin D prevents 17 cancers and works on more than a thousand genes. Mm. So, you know, you can do all that with your GP. You can do the stuff that I mentioned before yourself in the shops. Mm. You can do your diet. You can ask for melatonin. You can do a lot of this yourself. Mm. And then you could find a good naturopath or a good nutritionist who's, who's good and knows what they're doing. Someone recommends. Um, or a, a GP who does what I do. There are some GPs who do conventional medicine with conventional time frames so that you don't have to pay much more. Um, and then, you know, then they can start chipping away at all the other things for you. Mm. You don't have to see me. As lovely as you are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, no, I just, that, the thought just come to mind because, um, to, to, in my mind, it has to be an immensely democratic process that everybody can get involved in their own health. Mm. Um, and, you know, I say that as somebody who's not at their peak of health, um, but still out of the ground and vertical, which is mm. always which is always a good place mm. to be. Mm. Um, so that's really... And the one thing that, that you mentioned in there, which I think is so important, I, 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 I thank my lucky stars, I've always been a really good sleeper. Mm. And I can put my head on the pillow and the world around me can be falling down, but I can be asleep in 10 minutes. Well, you're in the minority. Insomnia is a huge problem. Right. And, you know, um, after having learnt and been prescribing cannabis products, um, I, I find that that's quite helpful for a lot of people. But I would do all the other things first. I would do the magnesium, the zinc, the iron and B12 also helps sleep. Um, and then melatonin, and then magnesium. And then if we're still having difficulty, then I would look at cannabis products. And the combination product, THC with CBD, that works the best. And, and I, suppose it's, I suppose it would be difficult to underestimate the value of a good night's sleep. I mean, surely without, without a good night's sleep, your body's going to struggle. It makes all the difference. When I've been able to help people get adequate 
good quality sleep, everything else starts to get better. It's really important. Mm. And it's it's not, um, and it wasn't, you know, it's not, it's not until recently when I've been talking to people about this, this subject that I just realised how many people don't sleep well. It's really common. But then yep. also, it's also interesting talking to quite a few friends that some friends do brilliantly on six hours, some friends, if they did six hours, they'd still be half dead in the morning. Yep. So obviously it's an individual Sleep is individual. Um, generally, we think it should be between seven and nine hours, mm. and we think you should be in bed and asleep by 10.30, right. because otherwise you will not make your own natural melatonin, right? Yeah. So that's the formula, but some people can get away with less sleep and others need more. But the hidden problem that many may not pick up on is the blue light that we're being... Um, sort of overwhelmed with, everybody's changing their lights from old-fashioned lights to LED lights. So they're getting the blue light from them. They're watching TV or looking at their devices, and that's blue light. And blue light suppresses melatonin. Mm. That's why you go out in the sun in the morning to get the, the blue light that suppresses your melatonin and you wake up more. So the solution to that is you can put... F.Lux on your devices, and you can wear um, blue blocking glasses. Now, I've done the research on that, and they work. Mm. Blue blocking glasses. I think I remember, was it, what was his name? Andrew Huberman, I think, was his name. And I, I think he's, he's a kind of, I don't know whether he's Harvard or Sanford. He's a, I think he's a sleep expert. Yeah. And I remember hearing him talk about this very thing, and he was saying, Look, you know, we can get into the, 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 the biochemistry and the complicatedness of it all. But if you, he says fundamentally, the, the, the being outside in the morning yep. when the sun is low in the sky mm. and not looking at blue light yes. or having too much in the yes. evening and getting to bed, if you were to just mm. do that, mm. you're, you would almost, mm. I, th I don't know whether you said re almost reset your sleep cycle. Well, or it heart. sort of does because it suppresses your melatonin so that you wake up properly. But yeah. then you get a whole lot of melatonin suppressing stuff in the evening mm. and then you might go to bed late and then you've been looking at your devices before you go. To so then you don't get enough melatonin in the night now, melatonin is a really powerful antioxidant. Um, if you don't get enough melatonin, you get depressed, you get dementia, you get heart disease, you get anxious, you get, it helps with a lot of conditions, including inflammatory bowel diseases, migraine, etc. So melatonin, good sleep, is important for your health and mm. for resilience. So... And it's it, you know we we kind of mentioned the inflammatory bowel diseases and stuff, but mm. am I right in saying that most disease is inflammatory? Yes. From some in some yes. form. So how does that mechanism work in the body? Um, you know, inflammation is the body's response to something being out of whack. Either the diet's not right, or you're stressed, or uh, you're deficient in something, and so then you get inflamed. And a, a, an easy way of thinking about it is you cut yourself and it gets red, or you scratch yourself and it gets red, that's inflammation, or you've got a sore throat and that's red. But we can measure inflammation by looking at um, your cholesterol, your CRP, 
your D-dimer, your liver function tests, your ferritin, which is normally an indicator of your store of iron, but when it's very, very high, it means you're inflamed, you see. So doctors get clues as to whether you're inflamed. Um, and before I knew all this stuff, I used to think, okay, this person's going to get diabetes. What do I do now? Whereas now I, I, I've worked out that if I correct their diet, and I've been able to correct thyroid function and get kidney function better and get uric acid down. Uric acid is what goes up and gives you gout. But uric acid goes up when you're inflamed and then it gives you gout. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I've seen this happen in my patients. So all I've had to do was get the right diet, get them sleeping, um, deal with their stress and their personality and correct their imbalances. And then I watch all their biochemistry get better. So inflammation is the body's response to something being out of whack. Mm. And that's a nice general term that will cover the diet, the biochemistry, the stress, you know. So, uh, you know, if I was to put a layperson's summary on this, um, you know, most of our illness is, is a byproduct of in inflammation, yes. which in itself is a byproduct of either n lifestyle with, with sleep or not very good diet or your personality type um, driving one of those imbalances. Yeah. And so just by, so we don't have to run for the latest drug for this or the latest drug for that. Yeah. What we should all be doing is going, why am I running around like a nutcase, number one? Uh, maybe I should cut back and have more plant-based food, number two. Um, maybe I should try some meditation or something. Uh, and I should probably listen to my body a bit more mm. and, and just get my basic minerals and vitamins into and I suppose you don't you know you you can jump on a website or go to a a, a vitamin place and you could buy you can almost be overcome by the selection and the confusion but I suppose at a bare minimum if you just get yourself a, a fish oil a good multivitamin and make sure your vitamin D is all good and then look at those other aspects of your lifestyle at least mm. you've started on the right path would that yeah. be a fair summary yeah that's good I think you've done you've summarised it very well yeah so look. This has been a really fascinating, primarily I wanted to talk with you because I was speaking to a friend who's a pharmacist and it was interesting that he was a pharmacist with a foot both in traditional biochemistry and pharmacy but also as a trained naturopath. Um, and I was having this conversation with him, he goes, oh, you need to speak to this lady. Um, so that's how we came about the introduction and so I wanted this to I wanted this hopefully to be an introduction to people about the, you know, the, the term functional or integrated medicine or complementary or alternative or all of these things which they probably don't have a, like I, probably didn't have a, an accurate understanding of. And um, look, let's, let's, let's get this edited up and, and put it out there and, and uh, if we both like each other after the end of this, then I'd be, I'd be, it'd be wonderful to be able to sit down with you and maybe look at some common issues that people um, suffer with, um, whether that's you know hormone-related or lifestyle-related or whatever, and, and maybe talk about those a little bit more in depth if you're up for that. But I'd be very happy to. Yeah, but, but Francis, thank you so much for spending your time with me, and um, it was really insightful. Thank you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I'd like to thank Frances for taking time to speak with us today and to find out more about her work and her practice, 
follow the links in the description of this episode. <laughs>